Hello and welcome back to the PGCE podcast. We've decided to stick with what's turning into a winning formula because we've got a book and we've got a guest. We have. We've got the lovely Sally Bethel in with us. Sally, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. And thank you for inviting me back. Very kind of you. Oh, you're most welcome. It's really good to have you again. Um, And this time we are going to be reviewing, well, actually we're not reviewing a book. We're going to take a bit of a deep dive into a key chapter of a book which is a bit like a synthesis at the end of the book of kind of everything that's gone before it. We encountered this book at Book Club. We've got a staff book club, haven't we, Sal? Oh, and it's it's really a really good thing to do because it makes you read. Yeah. It makes you read things to do with education, which yeah. you do. I know it's our job, but yeah. finding the time to do it, it's a, it's a really nice incentive for it. Yeah, and do you know, it's really nice to get together every sort of half term and have a good old chinwag some baked goods um, yes. and talk education in a, a low stakes environment. Yes, it is. It's a, it's a really nice format for us. Yeah. Okay, so the book that we're going to take a deep dive into this time is called Cleverlands by Lucy Crehan. And I'm gonna, just going to read you the blurb so you get a sense of, of what this book is about. As a teacher in an inner city school, Lucy Crehan was exasperated with ever-changing government policy, claiming to be based on lessons from top-performing education systems. She resolved to find out what was really going on in the classrooms of countries whose teenagers ranked top in the world in reading, maths and science. Cleverlands documents Crehan's journey around the world, weaving together her experiences with research on policy, history, psychology and culture to offer extensive new insights into what we can learn from these countries. I think there's probably two quite tempting aspects to that description, aren't there? I mean, first of all, we've talked about PISA quite a lot on this podcast, the idea that we're all kind of ranked internationally, our education systems. And so we're very aware of these other countries that get held up as being marvellous in every way and that we can all be jealous of them. So it's interesting to get a bit of a dive into a number of these countries to have a look under the bonnet. And I think the other thing is just the fact that so many people purport to be able to tell us what we should be doing educationally. But here's a lady who actually got on a plane and went to find out firsthand. And I think for me, that gives her a lot of cred before we even open the first page. I would agree with that. And just for those of you who can't remember or don't know, um, PISA stands for the Programme for International Student Assessment. And they are completed every three years in reading, maths and science. And each country that chooses to participate enters a representative sample of 15 year olds to sit to the papers. So PISA is quite up there in terms of driving uh, policy, educational policy. And uh, big and scary headlines about people's education systems as well. It's an absolute gift for the media. Yeah, so and I would agree with you. I think Lucy Crehan is a little bit of a legend, actually, that she just decided to get on a plane, go and see what it's like to actually experience being a teacher, a learner, a parent... Uh, anyone in education really in those particular cultural contexts what did you think Sal? I I just loved the book I thought it was very very readable and I think Tom what you were saying about um, education being held or these countries being held up as oh you know they do this really well that, that very well and actually getting a feeling of what it was that countries did well and what we're seeing in Wales at the moment as curriculum development going Actually, I get an idea where they've taken that from now. It gave me a a better picture, I think, of why we're doing some of the things that we're doing. But it was just very enjoyable to read. It's it's really accessible. And for me, that was important. And I got a lovely flavour of five different countries' education systems. Good point, actually. We should probably name the five different countries. Oh, there's, uh, there's a quiz question. I know. Well, let's try and guess. I've got the list here. How many can you remember, Sam? I think there was Finland, Shanghai, Japan, Canada and... Singapore. Well done. Yeah. I did try it out of five. <laughs> yeah, wow. I think Finland was always going to be there, wasn't it? Because yes. everyone's always going on about how great Finland is educationally. Yeah. It's cold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I guess going back to um, what you were just talking about, Sal, actually, you know, and, and what you were talking about, Tom, there's a really good forward to this book that I actually read part of to my student teachers because we can get really caught up in quantitative data and statistics and the scores that come from PISA and the percentages and they can really be used as weapons 
within education that actually comes back on us even in the classroom as teachers Mm. so I thought a really nice antidote to that was this perspective coming from Tim Oates CBE who gives the forward to the book he says worryingly PISA survey findings had increasingly been appropriated in order to instill domestic fear of falling behind look at them and look at us now listen to me and then what he says about Lucy Crehan is he says that she has added a vital qualitative dimension to quantitatively focused international comparison it is an essential read for those wishing to draw insights from transnational comparisons and a tonic to cherry picking the irresponsible myopia of the single extracted fact and it, it, I, I totally agree with that it, it depends on the hands in which the the facts are, are placed and and what those hands do with those facts yes and i think we are at the whim of people making policy decision who who do that rather a lot. I think she steers a really nice line down the middle. And we've said this before, haven't we? we? We like people who steer a line down the middle compared to all these people at one end or the other. People tend to, I'm thinking Singapore, you know, people will either look at the raw statistics of what goes on and say, well, it must be excellent because this number is bigger than our number, which is kind of dangerous on the one side. On the other side, people will dismiss it and say, well, Singapore, you know, it's in the Far East, it's culturally very different. We can't take anything from it and and dismiss it for that reason. And I think she does a really good job of coming straight down the middle, acknowledging the cultural differences and also acknowledging the weakness of raw numbers in boxes. Yes, I think those cultural differences do come out really clearly in the book and, and it was something that I kept kept re- referring back to and thinking, but we're not like that, so it might not work. But I think the chapter that we're looking at at the end where she just draws out principles is, is very useful because we clearly are culturally very different. I That's a, a great segue, actually, and a great point, Sal. And what she's not trying to do, and she kind of sets out a stall in at the start of this chapter, which is entitled Five Principles for High-Performing Equitable Education Systems, is she acknowledges that it's not going to be helpful to try and think like for like. It will be helpful in having a look at and then contextualizing some of these principles and thinking about what comparisons can we make and just a new lens to look at your own education system so what she says that she's going to try to do is she wants to share with us the five principles that she believes underlie high-performing equitable education systems and I think it's probably best that we kind of just take them one at a time what do you think guys That sounds very uh, chronological to me. Yes. Yeah, and I really liked this first one. Principle number one, get children ready for formal learning. And I think I like this. I'm going to go into a little anecdote here. (laughs) I've got a a little girl who's just turned six, and I distinctly remember collecting her from nursery one day. I think she was literally two years old at the time. And the nursery worker handed her over to me and said... She did, I think it was a four-piece jigsaw puzzle today. I said, oh, good. And then he carried on with the words, so she met her objective for today. (laughs) (laughs) And as I reeled back in horror, I thought, firstly, what? Her objective? She's two. And then shortly after that thought came into my brain, the thought, I bet some of the parents absolutely lap this stuff up. Yeah, and what she was doing was relational skills. <laughs> Wouldn't it have been nice to have just said she did a four-piece jigsaw puzzle today? Yay! Yeah, <laughs> that's it, and celebrate that part of it. So, uh, yeah, and I think as a secondary specialist, that, that discovery that people start talking about objectives when they're two. <laughs> it's frightening, actually, isn't it? I do, I, I'm with you on that one, Tom. Um, yeah, th- I'm with you too. And, and I think, I get the sense that Lucy Crehan is... Yeah, and I think that's that's her background partially as well, isn't it? What what I liked was this idea of, you know, it doesn't mean that they, they don't have some form of schooling. So they have a kindergarten type experience, but that is focused much more on social skills and pre-academic skills as opposed to formal learning. And routines and dealing with transitions and all of that kind of thing, isn't and it? And those parts actually are, are really important because I like the idea that children do get into some form of routine so that you have maximum playtime almost mm. you know to, to to acquire those skills so they were those weren't per, you know they weren't just so that we can all stand in lines there was a purpose behind 
facilitating their learning, but it's not formalised and measured in the same way that in our in our system at the moment we have yes agreed and she kind of gives the nice metaphor that she draws from the bible actually doesn't she she takes um kind of a a, a parable about soil and bit the soil being ripe and the, the kids being the soil <laughs> i guess and their minds and being ready to learn and and there being a, a real correlation actually between them being ready and having the, the skills but also decisions. the fact that that is actually research informed it's not just saying you know we think it's like this that that was informed by research yes and we sort of we, we keep saying we're research informed here and then ignoring it yeah <laughs> and the word i wrote in capitals next to it was the word dispositions teaching them the dispositions yes. towards learning and we don't have to go far, do we, to hear about um, this this suggestion that you know, mental health amongst children in our country is perhaps not the greatest. And I remember hearing a report where a child was talking about exam stress and then discovering that they were actually a primary school pupil. And you just Quite think, frightening. yeah, why why aren't we valuing the process of teaching pupils those dispositions, those routines, and and that approach to learning that that's not you know a useful use of their time. But, but the underlying part of it, wasn't it, it's done through play, activities are playful. So although they may be organised, they're playful activities. Because I think play is missing for, for our children some of the time, and it's incredibly important. They also had built-in breaks. I was going to say, that was the other word I wrote in capitalist, breaks. <laughs> breaks, not just for teachers, but yeah. for children. But actually that they are physically out and about and running around. And that part of it, for me, was really important. I like the idea of the activity because they do talk about social activities and cognitive activity. And I, think yes. I want to see physical activities as well because that, I think that's incredibly important for children's development. Yeah, and if you think the weather is a problem, then you should take a leaf out of uh, Finland's book. <laughs> I think they talk about the not being bad weather but being bad clothing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So you've got to just you know make sure you've got the right kit yeah. and of course we had your fine colleague Fiona in talking about physical literacy yeah the other day. it definitely resonated with that didn't yeah. it and, that, and it is part of that holistic picture is you know mind and body yeah. um, and what I liked about it was the idea of the child initiated approach being favoured as well which kind of very much mirrors at what goes on in our foundation phase in Wales so I could see sort of glimpses there and we've done a lot of work recently with teachers in Wales trying to redevelop our lesson plan that we've got at our institution and a a key kind of priority for the foundation phase teachers was to ensure that the lesson plan was very much kind of driven by the learners and, and within within the, the spirit of child initiated learning um, so I quite liked that notion because within that you've got this idea of autonomy self-efficacy so kind of building their their sense as independent learners you know right from the start right from a preschool age I think one of the other things in this principle as well was the idea that actually th- while you have these children in this kindergarten phase that you would actually identify children who are going to need extra help yes you know that they were trying to get children to have this level of skill but actually there are children who don't have that and that they had professionals within their schools maybe not all the time but were there to support those children so they've got one-on-one support they've got little teams of support but those multidisciplinary teams are available to the schools in those countries yes and you know you're just thinking that is so sensible Pick them up when they're really young, identify those problems. You've got some chance of doing something about it. Yeah, I agree with that. And and also from a teacher perspective, just the acknowledgement that, you know, because the role of the teacher can expand and expand mm. and expand, can't it? But, and you know, acknowledging that access to professionals to support non-academic needs of pupils, whatever the setting, whatever yeah. the phase, is, is really crucial. We can't know everything. We cannot possibly know the absolute extent of the holistic developmental needs that our, our learners will come to us with. So being able to network, as you say, and collaborate with other professionals and having the money and the resort, the right resources. I think it was that level of resourcing mm. that, you know, I'm there will be that will be s- some level of that in Welsh schools, but I'm not sure it, it wouldn't come out as the same level of that or a principle in the same way. And interestingly, yeah. yeah, that's the only one of those things that costs any money, isn't it? The other ones are about confidence. Yes. In your own professional judgment 
uh, for what's best for the pupils? I guess at a governmental level, it does acknowledge the significance of high quality preschool because what she does mm. say and makes really clear is that Yes, they start later, but they do have very high quality preschool um, settings and practitioners yes. working in those locations. So it's kind of who who are able to balance the social and the cognitive activity, because that is a real, you know, the, the amount that a practitioner in that setting would need to know and understand is tantamount to what our trainee teachers in secondary would would need to know in primary. So I think it's really important to acknowledge that resourcing, particularly for families, parents, carers in areas of low economic social capital, there are, you know, even more need for appropriate resourcing governmental funding for preschool settings and access to preschool education is going to be really important. Well, the next one was about the design of curricular concepts for mastery. Yes. So the idea that your your curricula is actually quite minimal, mm. that you have few topics, but you do them in greater depth, mm-hmm. that you, it was high level in the idea that the concepts and the skills that you want children to learn are very clear, mm-hmm. but the how you teach them and the context through which you teach them is much more down to the teacher or the school there's more autonomy there but whatever you do teach them is is ordered that the concepts are organized in a logical manner so yes. i think that was sort of the three parts about curricular design that she was quite or pulled out as principal for the schools that she'd looked at yeah that's that's a really good summary and it's it struck me on that note um and I, i've said this before in earlier podcasts that getting our student teachers to understand curriculum design rather than see it as a document that they just receive and deliver is really important to what we do as teacher teacher educators. I liked this notion of concepts, not contexts, because you could be really tempted to just put everything into a national curriculum and then dilute experience and remove autonomy for teachers and sort of devalue context so I think that's that concepts not context bit is is really key but I I think she she makes the point is actually deciding on what the context is and how you teach it because you want to motivate your pupils and your pupils you know their their situation might be very different to another school situation or another region's situation and that it's got the flexibility to do that. You don't have to do this one thing because there's an exam at the end of it and the question is going to be on that one thing. Yes, exactly. She makes she she makes a really valid point, doesn't she, about systems where assessment of learning is driving curriculum design or is driving planning. Yeah, and, and, and the content of it, the context of yeah, it, I think. absolutely. Although I did make the point at the end, so I don't know what you to thought about this but I thought maybe she skirted around the issue somewhat at the end when she started talking about external testing well I think that because of where we are in Wales at the moment that is the the, the big rub in secondary schools at the moment isn't it is embracing a curriculum that where you went you can teach what you like as long as you cover these bits sort of thing mm. but the exam's going to be on this yeah mm. we're, we're doing a lot of research into this at the moment and and it's worth saying isn't it that donaldson makes some recommendations for our new curriculum that are absolutely in this this area of the chapter you know the, the concept of subsidiarity the idea yes. that the thing is going to be locally relevant and the pedagogical principle and i couldn't tell you which number it is no. about the, the the assessment needing to be kind of authentic, authentic. yes yeah however we know that you go into schools and they say lovely we we absolutely love this but we're still going to have GCSEs and A levels with syllabus contexts and concepts attached to them and as long as they're still on the scene the impact of these ideas is going to be limited mm. yeah and and we were, I, I wasn't quite sure how they've overcome this and I think there was actually there is one example isn't there where she's the frog and the bird Yes, where they're, having, out. where they're teaching it. She saw it several times because of the external exam was So about. you can pick yeah. any story. Strangely, everyone's doing the frog and the bird. Why could this be? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So, yes. I thought she was really good as well in this in this um, principle in kind of outlining some really valid points about why we do need a national curriculum and about how if 
pupils are having to kind of be retaught again and again or they move schools and there isn't that consistency um she talks specifically about um children who are for who are refugee children then their experience is going to be very patchy and inconsistent and and might be quite emotionally troubling actually for them as learners so i think she makes a wider point there that's very valid about curriculum design So principle three, this was all about supporting children to take on challenge rather than making concessions. And this kind of stems also from um, a wider look at how the five different settings deal with streaming and setting Mm. in school. Yeah, I was going to say this is where we get controversial because we start talking about academic selection and ability grouping. Mm. And I've struggled with this one because... I can't visualise it terribly well coming from our background where we, you know, one of the things that we develop in our our students is this ability to differentiate and how vital that is. And basically this principle is almost, we we don't. Well, it's not that we don't, sorry, I can see you looking at me there. It's just done in, in a different way is that there's, you know, you talk about teaching to the top. Yes. And I've always sort of thought, I really love that idea, but I don't quite know what it looks like. I mean, she talks about there being a common standard for all children to achieve, um, and nearly all children will achieve this standard. So, you know, we're talking, Estin speaks, she's talking 95% of the children in their systems are going to achieve this common standard. And the standard is reasonably high, but the children that will struggle are supported to get there, as opposed to the fact that we will have a sliding scale of going, you know, you could be an eight down to a four or whatever. It's all right not to hit that standard. And I think this touches on the fact that when we look at things like the John Hattie ranking of effects, which we've talked about in previous episodes, you know, feel free to go back if you haven't listened to that one yet. We do tend to gloss over the fact that ability grouping does sit stubbornly quite low on that list, but it's terribly popular, particularly Mm. with the parents of those who find themselves in the high sets, I would suggest. Mm. And yet in the book, Lucy Crean says that uh, in Poland, they delayed school selection by a year. So, you know, a form of of ability grouping. It had a massive impact. Huge, 120 points on the PISA tests, which which they said was hardly comparable to effects of any known educational policy. So I think I've certainly been dimly aware that the ability grouping doesn't fare very well once once you start researching into it but i think you know good luck to anyone that wants to get rid of it because it's it's very popular amongst a lot of people i think the wider point that she makes or that i can infer from this that i think is really important is about avoiding stigmatizing categorization of kids yes so you know labeling them or encouraging or not it may be even indirectly encouraging them to put a lid on on their ability by saying right you're in the bottom set and and maybe them kind of misconstruing or conflating that with that's that's as far as they can go and i think as well the the, the point about student effort making a difference yeah is that your intelligence level is not fixed it's malleable and there are things that will have an impact on that okay teaching quality will idea of parental support having an impact on that but also you yourself as the pupil if you work hard you will get better you will become you know you will learn more you will become more intelligent yes that that again was part of the emphasis here i think um in in this in this principle about student effort yeah it speaks to that to um growth mindset doesn't it that carol dweck um, yes. growth mindset idea that and and the idea of making no concessions for effort you know will help you get there but you've got to want to do it yourself but i think when we read the uh, chapter on japan the parental support part was frightening to me as as a fairly laid-back parent is yes. the fact that I would get my child a tutor for this a tutor for that I would sit and do all their homework with them and you know that because actually effort is very very important it, but we all make an effort not just the child the parents as mm-hmm. well um and you know 
I, I found that quite hard to go, really? But it clearly was. But I think when we spoke in the book group, there were people who have children who are just going into secondary school who were doing SATs tests and they were getting tutors for their children. You just think, oh, you know, it's, it's something I hadn't experienced yeah. as my child's that much older. But um, And I always think in those moments, well, who loses out? And it, more often than not, it are those parents who can't afford those resources. And also it seemed to me that the children had no time of their own very good point you know they are focused so much all the time you know they were churning the stuff out and Mm. that was that you know so for me there was a sort of balance on effort yeah I think we've all had those pupils haven't we we've seen them around school I I am thinking of one now and clearly I'm not going to name them but who had been earmarked for greatness academically and was being put through an enormous number of qualifications probably to make the school statistics look better rather than for her own well-being and uh, her parents were absolutely complicit in the whole thing and if I'm totally honest in my head what I wanted her to go do was to go off to university and go completely off the rails for a bit yeah <laughs> because the poor child was was grey about the face by the time she was in year 11 you know she had no life of her own as you say Sal and, and I really just wanted her to have a life poor thing mm. But again, with this one, it's the, it's the level of support for children yes. who are not achieving this common standard as well. You know, they talked in Finland about having one-on-one support, small groups um, with, with qualified teachers. Yes. So, it, it, you know, that, that level of a qualified person working to enhance their learning. And also with more able and talented yes. learners as well. So, yeah, so I guess... It's a bit of stretch and challenge. Yeah, it's that, as you say kind of coming back to that idea so there's that high level challenge and scaffolding for those who can't quite get there and stretch at the top so it kind of speaks to traditional kind of differentiation as we know it in mixed ability classes I it guess. is but I think it was that level of additional staffing yes yeah and I'm, I'm thinking now and possibly dropping a slightly controversial point in we've got three non-core subject specialists around the table here i'm sure there are some schools who would say yes but we do do one-on-one support we do take them out class yeah but whose subject do they take them out of you know? absolutely mm-hmm. yes and is that a good thing i mean i i certainly used to lose a lot of pupils to uh, supporting the core subject so it's interesting to read that you know a lot of this stuff happens outside of the main class time mm. Okay, let's look at number four. This is probably our favourite one. <laughs> Treat teachers as professionals. And I, I think one of, the, one of the main points you brought out here was the rigour of either teacher training or teacher professional learning. Mm-hmm. So there were different routes for training teachers in, in the different countries, but there was that high quality teacher training or professional learning so you might do a year and then you're followed up with a lot of professional learning um, that's funded that's t- that you're given time for and they only recruit the best it's a high stakes career isn't it yeah and uh, and the value that is placed upon that career in order to draw in the best quality candidates. What I also liked about this particular principle for our own sake was that she is unwavering in saying that a university is a really important setting mm. and part of teacher education, which um, I thought was very interesting given our own professions <laughs> and changes that are afoot. Yeah, there was a, there was a, I keep saying about controversial things here, but there was a, there was a very uh, provocative tweet I saw the other day by somebody saying that perhaps certain elements in the government would prefer not to have universities involved in teacher training because universities are quite hard to govern in terms of ideological kind of railroading. I don't think that's new, Tom. I think that's <laughs> been going on for quite a long time, especially if you look in England at the different routes into teaching yeah. that they, they funded. Mm. That was the um, strong suggestion that perhaps schools are slightly easier to keep in line ideologically, and that's why there's been a move um, yeah. over the border. In yeah, that direction. perhaps. But kind of speaking to your area of knowledge and, and research interests, Sally, I thought something that was very interesting, she, she puts in italics, for those of you who read the book, the kind of key points, the nub of the principle. And one of the things that I picked up on was that she says, 
Ensure newly qualified teachers have a reduced teaching load and time with a dedicated mentor who also has a reduced <laughs> teaching that, load. And that is, you know, the, the common sense behind that is unquestionable, isn't it? And yet we know. It doesn't happen. <laughs> it certainly doesn't. So it's the value, actually, not only around the, the person who's being trained and who is very new in their career, but it's also the value of the coaches and mentors who are absolutely crucial in, in guiding the next steps in their progression. And we know a lot of the time that these people are, are desperately keen to be supportive and to do all the right things by their NQTs, but are very time poor. Mm. Um, so that being built in as part of your job, you know, you just think, well, you could do such a good job if you were allowed, to, if you had that time. Yeah, and linked to that as well, because I know... Um, Emma and I have found this to be probably the single most important thing for our professional development, just that it's down there that you ring fence the time to get together and plan and evaluate collaboratively. Now, in the place that we work here in a secondary teacher training team, we're all subject specialists. And I think it's probably true to say that the way things are structured here, you could very easily become a lone operative. Oh, absolutely. And we've had to work quite hard, actually, to stop that happening. And we work together a lot and our very very best most enjoyable and probably most impactful sessions for the students are the ones where we've decided to work on them together and that we talk about them afterwards I really agree with this and I I felt like a very strong thread that was running through all of these five principles was the notion of collaboration and working within a network I mean we've already encountered it in relation to working with other professionals to support pupils learning and development She touches on it in the accountability principle and the idea of schools working with other schools to help fix issues or to develop their practice. And I think it it just seems so simple, but how come we can't get it right? It's it's a real bugbear for me. And and I think a, a lot of it is down to time because actually collaborative work does require that you have to be in the same place as somebody else. Mm. So if you're teaching all the time, that is is very hard. Yeah. But that was sort of, it was flagged up, wasn't it, as a, the professional learning element for, mm. you know, even if they'd had just the one year, that was part of what was going to be built in. Mm. And there was time and that was part of the culture. Mm. And also, I don't think people in the other countries taught as much, as many hours Yes. They had a lower number of contact hours, which gives you that bit of freedom. I guess that's what some of the Welsh schools are doing with their new timetables with the new curriculum is what they're calling an asymmetric timetable, aren't they? Where Mm. there is half a day, basically, where school doesn't operate. And that is going to be planning time for teachers in secondary schools. There's the BIM PPA time in primary schools. Mm. Um, So that's a sort of, I suppose, a, a... a nod towards that yeah how that goes will be interesting to uh, see uh, i suppose time will tell and should we drop one more hand grenade into this discussion before we move on which Tom, is the really bit controversial <laughs> just i'm not sure whether this <laughs> is going to be one of my <laughs> contributions that results in uncomfortable silence after it but one of the bits i highlighted from from this and this is something we've discussed uh, previously emma is this Teacher salary is one of the few yeah. things that correlate with PISA scores. Now, I did once In Canada, say, that is. Right. In a conversation, I said, I, I know it's politically very incorrect, or perhaps it's just not the done thing to say it, but I've often mused in those quiet moments by myself, what would happen if we doubled teachers starting salary overnight? And that's curious, isn't it? Because we're never going to find out, I don't no, think. No, I don't think we are. <laughs> How many people don't join the profession because the money's not good enough? Now, I know that, you know, you've, you've got to have a calling to be a teacher, but I just sometimes wonder how many really, really, really high quality people don't join the profession just for that very boring reason. Well, you haven't always got to have a calling because you've only got to look at incentive grants to realise that money talks... Okay. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think because we re- I've read the book and on you know all the things we do we go oh, it's research informed we can say that mm. so these are sort of musings where you go my instinct is you probably get some more possibly higher quality candidates into the profession and, maybe, and who want to stay yeah yeah it's an uncomfortable conversation isn't it but it's a really interesting it one is an interesting one to think about but I think the status of the career is yes and I suppose that yeah. is linked to the financial reward in it yeah because you know you, you you get a calling to be a doctor don't you I mean 
people work incredibly hard at being doctors, but they're considerably better paid than teachers. You know, I just wonder. She mm. interestingly though, she makes a she makes a link between status of the profession and university training. So going back to that point, um, and maybe as an antidote to Tom's cynicism. <laughs> <laughs> She says there are good reasons for requiring teachers to study in universities and pass rigorous training. Other than the positive effect it can have on the status of the profession, there are actual things that it is useful for them to learn there. So if we are going to kind of foster an intrinsic motivation that's kind of give them the desire, besides the money, to carry on... It's about making them see the profession as something that is research informed, that is ever advancing, changing, that they're part of that process and that they are not the finished article when they finish training and that they're always going to be kind of adding to a bigger field of knowledge. And that's a career, isn't it? That it's a, a good career to go into. It's a professional career. I, sp- I think, yes, part of what we've been... I suppose tasked with with the, the the newly accredited program is that this is a starting point of being involved in a professional career where you'll grow. Mm. So this is the starting point, and over time, with those professional learning opportunities, you grow. Yeah. But whether you could incentivise that further by giving people more money, Tom, I, <laughs> I'd love to know yeah, the answer to that. I'd love to know the answer. I, I should point out I'm not motivated by money, but I'm just I'm just interested. No, I, I think that is quite. I do think that's an interesting point. Yeah, I'll I leave think, it with you. Well, people who are motivated by different things it doesn't mean it's good or bad. If they could be a good teacher, and yeah. part of the reason was they were well paid, I wouldn't have a problem with that mm. as long as they were a good teacher. Yeah, yeah. There we are. Moving on to number five, and I think I think most people are going to quite like this one as well. Combining oh. school <laughs> accountability with school support, and then in brackets, rather than sanctions. And, and I, that idea that you had advice, support, and that you were connected to people who were going to look after your school and help you make, you know, the development that we're talking about as being important just sounded in just incredibly sensible. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I suppose before you even get to the point where you've got the schools needing the support, creating a culture and she she noticed a culture across these um, five uh, countries of responsibility and answerability being synonymous with accountability not culpability and liability yes, we did have quite a conversation around the use of the words that are, you know you connect with being responsible didn't you yeah I thought there was an interesting um, point that came up in Japan in relation to school inspections. She says, in Japan, school inspections are made up of five members of a board of education who are often ex-teachers and principals. Okay, fine. And the, the kind of big key point that comes in from here is that they come five times across the course of a year in Japan to inspect a school. And then they produce a very lengthy um, booklet, a, a report of advice and recommendations. So I suppose rather than judgments and final scores, and I suppose measure that and pit that against um, the very short amount of time that Eston and Ofsted come in to to make judgments about schools in the UK that it 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 just seems so obvious that how could you possibly get a measure of a school in such a short space of time but I think it was in Finland as well wasn't they saying they they don't inspect schools Mm. but they've taken 20 years to get to that stage they the, the point the part we're in in Wales at the moment where we're, we're starting this brave new world new curriculum new ways of doing things they've they've took 20 years from that point to go we are now confident enough in ourselves that we're okay yes so you know that there's going to be this gradual process wouldn't it be lovely though to say that you know guess we're we're all confident enough that we don't need to do these sorts of things anymore it's definitely in the spirit of schools as learning organizations isn't it and and you can liken that to all aspects of education you know if teachers are trusted and feel that they are research informed and know how to do their jobs properly and know how to do right by their learners then they will and collaborate and network and and believe in professional learning then 
potentially they won't need to be scrutinised within an inch of their lives yeah. and <laughs> measured at every opportunity. And I think one of the, one of the other things she came from this principle, which I, I really liked, was to incentivise, so I presume that's kind of probably financial, Tom, uh, <laughs> demonstrably good teachers and so. middle leaders to work in schools that are struggling. Yeah. You know, how many of our sort of top-performing schools attract top performing teachers and we have that culture that they can keep attracting them and when we're struggling for teachers maybe schools that are in challenging situations get what are left get the people that are left Mm. um some of the time and i Mm. think you know that idea of of saying maybe you can you can help people to go to places where they would maybe have more of an impact yeah i quite like that i think it's i think that's slightly radical and controversial tom i think so it, it does go hand in hand with how you how schools are made accountable and how they are pitted against one another because you're going to be far less likely as a head to want to share your top members of staff and to share your secrets of your success with your cluster even you know even of your neighboring schools if you're pitted against one another. And going back to your point about tutors, given how many high-flying schools are in uh, socio-economically prosperous areas, uh, the secrets of your success are sometimes the number of pupils getting tutors outside of the school day. Well, this was in the news very recently, wasn't it? Um, a kind of a damning indictment by one particular individual about Northern Ireland and, and the high percentage of high-flying grammar schools in Northern Ireland that they still have and the fact that it kind of masks a whole world of issues and inequity for schools in socioeconomically deprived areas. Yeah, I took a trip to Northern Ireland, as I mentioned in a previous episode, and spoke to my opposite number over there. And the way that the funding is done over there and the way that things are done is is probably best described as interesting. Mm. Leadership training comes up as well. Uh, we talked about this before, haven't we? The yes. idea that they actually invest in training their leaders. Now, I know when I was a new teacher, I did used to just say, well, I wouldn't I wouldn't listen to a head or a deputy head that hadn't done their time in the classroom. I really kind of attached a lot of value to that. And the longer I kind of stayed in the profession, the more I realised that just having done your time as a teacher and then getting booted upstairs wasn't necessarily <laughs> that doesn't equip best. you with a proper skill set possibly no no it's the same for mentors isn't it it's exactly Absolutely. the same logic we can't just expect somebody just because they are you know have served for a long time and are very good at what they do to be able to articulate that kind of tacit knowledge that they've got and to then know uh, and have the expertise to train someone else or to, to coach someone else. We know we've spoken to you about this, Sal. But that go and I think that connects back to the idea of these of schools as learning organisations. Mm. That it isn't just the teaching; it's the it's the leadership and management within those schools that's effective. Mm-hmm. But I think in Finland, in their schools, they have one leader and nobody else is a leader. So yeah. we wouldn't need to have any leadership training or maybe just the one at the top. Yeah. <laughs> I've often felt that uh, leadership in an educational organisation should be like jury service. You should get a note in your pigeonhole saying that you've got to be the deputy head this term and you should be not best pleased. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, yeah, another contribution from Tom there. <laughs> I don't know what was in my coffee this morning. <laughs> I think um, the other point I just wanted to make to end this principle was about the link between being in a, in a highly accountable culpability and liability accountability culture and what negative impact that can have on teachers' creativity and innovation. So actually, if you put them under that amount of stress, they're not going to be able to to change things. They go. It's not going to reap good results. So she says being stressed doesn't help you come up with innov- innovative new solutions that you hadn't thought of previously. It shuts down your creativity. Highly evaluative contexts decrease creative performance, and that is rooted in, in research. So just it's, it's kind of false economy, really, if the powers that be think that they kind of beat teachers into submission and to reaping results for learners. Yes. Yeah, no, I agree with you on that one, Emma. And I really like the point that she makes right at the very end, because we obviously, we sit here looking over the fence at these countries and, and feeling that perhaps the grass is green, or perhaps we can't get there, perhaps we can't change. She says, 
Japanese parents haven't always considered education to be important. Um, Singaporean graduates haven't always considered teaching to be an attractive profession. She says culture can change and it's schools and school systems that have the power to change it. And I guess the final point to make is that um, she kind of says all together now at the end of this chapter, meaning these principles are very much interconnected. She gives her a clear nod to that throughout the chapter, but it's worth mentioning that, you know, no one of these principles exists in a silo and exists on its own in a vacuum. They're, they're all highly interconnected and part of the kind of broader tapestry of, of what makes education work and, and have equitable outcomes for, for pupil progress. So that was our deep discussion on the five recommendations that came out of Lucy Crehan's book, Cleverlands. Well worth a read of the whole book if you get the opportunity. As Sally said, it's very, very readable. And huge thanks to Sally Bethel, Senior Lecturer in PGCE Secondary PE, for becoming another repeat podcast guest. Thank you, Sally. Right. It's time to move on to the customary three little slots at the end of the podcast and we're going to try something a little bit different here because through the magic of technology we're actually recording this bit sometime after the deep discussion and for the first time we're not in the same room we're not in the same room but we are modeling productivity we are masters of productivity right now tom we are, and we'll definitely mention that, I think, in a future slot, the the use of technology to make ourselves more productive. But we are recording this remotely. We can't kind of lock eyes and look, to panic, look panicked at each other across the desk. And also, we may hear your dog in the background. Yeah, absolutely. I am currently uh, staring face-to-face with my little black cocker spaniel who desperately wants to go out for a walk soon. So <laughs> you may Ooh, hear okay. him <laughs> whimpering away in the background. We'll make this quick then. So our well-being slot. Now, this is one that we talked about, actually, and we recorded um, very, very early on, right at the very beginning of recording the podcast. And we've never quite got around to using it. But I think now is the time because Lucy Crehan makes it clear that one of the major pluses to improve teaching and learning is for teachers to make a real point of working together collaboratively. And I think it's worth making the suggestion that before people leap in and try to work collaboratively with their colleagues and create all these kind of amazing new and innovative things, I would suggest that you have to get to know one another on some level uh, socially. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think it establishes this sense of mutual trust, which creates a nice kind of safe space then really for you to talk about professional things uh, without fear of judgment. Yeah, I think when you are trying to innovate and when you are trying to be creative, and we do this for our pupils when we ask them to do it, you have to create a space where you feel comfortable to make a suggestion that turns out to be kind of useless or not very good. And that isn't going to happen until you put in the time to get to know somebody. I think the plus point of that is this gives you a mandate to go and have a cup of tea with somebody. (laughs) Yeah, which we do on a regular basis. But it does really speak to um, mindset as well, because sometimes it can be really difficult. I think we've said this before, maybe in relation to Survival Cuppa, that giving yourself permission to actually go and socialise with colleagues can be quite difficult at times for numerous reasons, namely from a personal perspective, you know, feeling like it's perhaps, um, you know, getting in the way of doing real work. But Tom, you've you've got some insights on on that and and how it can kind of free up your mind for real work. Yeah, I mentioned in a previous episode, I think that that I've always been a great believer in breaks. I think they're very important. I think the, the worst kind of instinct is to just keep pushing on as you become less and less productive. What's interesting is that we have our little group, which, which often meets together as often as we can. We call it Pint Club, uh, partly because the first rule of Pint Club is you don't talk about Pint Club, which clearly I'm breaking <laughs> now. Uh, and also because ironically, we've never actually had a pint together. Uh, but we are a little social group. And and funnily enough, some of our colleagues will sometimes see us uh, sitting and chatting and, you know, very obviously having quite a nice time and laughing about things. And they'll sometimes come and join us and they'll always say afterwards, oh, how lovely it is to take a break and all the rest of it. And you just sort of feel like saying to them, well, just do it then. Give yourself permission to do it because it's so useful on a professional level we're all teachers we all end up talking about work that's what teachers do but you you have to start in a kind of safe and unthreatening place which is just having a chat 
Absolutely. And, you know, from a from a sort of a work perspective, you do tend to kind of drift in and out of work conversations. And in relation to well-being, things come up that maybe have been troubling me or been troubling my, my fellow pint clubbers. And you can iron them out in a, in a non-threatening environment and, you know, just feel a hell of a lot better going back to your desk and, and working on the next thing that's uh, perhaps been a bit of a challenge. Yeah, and if you want a concrete example, in that episode, we talked about flipped learning quite recently. The flipped learning idea came out of a meeting that got cancelled, I think, wasn't it? And we ended up sitting outside. We could have gone home. We chose to have a chat. And out of that grew the flipped learning. Precisely. So something that might have been sort of percolating in the background could come to the fore in one of these more relaxed tea drinking episodes. And yeah, it could blossom into something that's really productive and really great for your learners. So go and have a cup of tea and call it work or pre work. <laughs> Tom, we talk about tea a lot on this podcast. We do, we do, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that was our wellbeing slot. Go grab a cuppa and I'll tell you a little bit about my shout out this week, which will seamlessly turn into a something to try. So I would like to shout out to a lovely trainee teacher of English called Georgina Saunders, who is working at a school in Cardiff. And I'm shouting out to her because she took a huge risk in a very high stakes environment, might I add. I'd come out to observe her for the first time. She was working with a group of learners, year 10, secondary English class, and she'd only been teaching them since September. This was October time. And she'd read, she'd been doing some research as part of her assignment, um, and she'd read and gotten really interested in modelling writing. And so she decided that due to the kind of compelling uh, evidence coming through in what she was reading about the impact that modelling can have on pupils' learning and confidence in their writing, she decided to try it for the first time in a lesson observation. What do you think about that, Tom? (laughs) I know. Yeah, I think sometimes you've got to... I think there's a converse risk sometimes of being too risk-free in lesson observations. I've seen some reasonably sterile lessons, so I will always take my hat off to somebody who wants to pull something new out of the bag in an obs. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, And I think... What I'll probably do now is is tell you about what modelling writing is, why you might decide to do it, what it might look like, and then go back to congratulating Georgina and you might have a, a even more respect for her um, after you hear what it involves. Yeah, because so, I think modelling is something we talk about in the practical subjects, yeah. isn't it, quite a lot, but I'm not really quite sure what that would look like in, in writing. So I am all ears. Okay, so first of all, let's tackle why would you model and then why would you model writing? I mean, ultimately, you are the expert in your subject and the expert in the classroom. And I don't make... I don't say that in a way to kind of daunt or, or make anybody feel really scared about being the expert. But let's just think about it on a, from a lesson perspective. You will have planned that lesson and you'll be the expert in the content or skills that you're trying to guide your pupils to an understanding of. So you're the best person to show pupils what that thing that you're trying to teach them looks like or how to navigate their way through it. So you're the kind of best person in the class to to demonstrate. So being able to model is effectively being able to demonstrate what something good looks like in practice and how to go about doing it. Um, And it's the how you go about doing it that is really powerful when you're modelling because you're not only showing them what good practice looks like. If you're doing it well, you're also explicitly telling them the steps that you're taking in completing the task or in solving the problem. So we've got metacognition coming in here. It's thinking about your thinking. It's talking about your thought process, making that really explicit and clear to your pupils so that they can replicate it or emulate it. So it's kind of two twofold there, really. Yeah, there's a real difference, isn't there, between just doing a really amazing one in front of them, which could be potentially a bit disheartening, and doing an amazing one and pulling back the curtain so they can do an amazing one too. 
Yeah, exactly. Now, this is where it gets exciting because I thought about my own previous practice and I used to use as a teacher a lot of uh, models. Okay, so modelling and modelled examples are completely different things. For those of you who who don't know the difference, you might give like a model answer to uh, an essay question um, or any kind of question that you're trying to demonstrate to your pupils. And it might encompass lots of really, really good examples of, of the success criteria being met. But unless you pull that apart with your learners and demonstrate how that really good example came came about then you're not necessarily uncovering the secrets and the and the steps the incremental steps to to achieving that model answer for your pupils so essentially what modeling does is it is a real time construction of an answer or demonstration of a skill that is taken step by step and is done in real time with your learners and the best examples of modelling are where the pupils are encouraged to be kind of actively engaged in each step of that process and there are different ways that you can achieve that uh, and, I'll, and I'll, it's probably best that I give you a concrete example by talking about modelling writing. So it's incredible how many of us ask our pupils and as part of our, our subject assessments, summative assessments, have extended writing that our pupils need to complete. So writing is something that really unifies us as subjects because of the, that as a, as a common assessment outcome. Um, but how many of us, I wonder, see ourselves as really key in modelling writing for our learners? I wonder, is this ring fence to English or is this something that all of us could be getting involved in? Yeah, I think I've been guilty of this at A-level actually in music. When I was a teacher, there was always this problem that I would give them loads of really good examples of essay questions i'm thinking about you saying that you know that they need to know uh, why i would they, they could see it was good and they'd all nod and smile and i'd go away feeling happy thinking oh they know what a good one is now but what i wasn't asking myself is do they know how to do one as well yeah absolutely okay so a model can be quite a good or a model model dancer um, can be a good place to start in helping your pupils understand what the success criteria are. So you could start off with looking at a really good example and with your pupils kind of try to get to the bottom of what success looks like and why that is an example of success. Because success criteria are really key, are really key and crucial for them to know and understand before you start to model and craft the writing with them. Because otherwise you're you're you again that's a that's a piece to the puzzle that you're you're kind of concealing from them they need to know that so that they can help you the person modeling achieve success in the moment so a couple of ways that you could do it and a couple of suggestions for setting yourselves up to be able to do this well you don't necessarily have to go in improvising the answer and having to come up with it from scratch as the teacher yes you are the expert but you can give yourself some prompts before you start modeling writing that will help you to be able to kind of stick to the rules yourself in situ in front of your learners so for example I did this with my PGC drama students and it was modelling an extended piece of writing about live performance. So pupils in drama often have to write about a live production that they went to see. So before we started, I taught my students what is commonly known as a mnemonic. Um, I never know whether I'm pronouncing that correctly, but it's kind of a, a memory aid. And it's basically a scaffold for writing their answer. So in my example, I used a mnemonic idea. So uh, it's a structure. Idea is an acronym for identify something in the performance that was effective, describe in detail how it was used, evaluate its impact and analyse how it links to the plot, the context, the themes, etc. So that's very drama specific. So I gave them already up front and taught them the structure that I was going to apply to my writing. Then I made sure 
prior that I had thought about an example that I was going to give and that I was going to use as my starting point when modelling this written answer. And I gave myself some kind of starter sentences just in case I got stuck when I was modelling writing in front of my pupils live. The other piece of equipment that you need to have, or it's useful to have, you don't need to have it, it's useful if you can have it prior to a session like this where you're modelling writing, is a visualiser. They're very cheap and they're essentially just like a, a modern day overhead projector, for those of the, you who can remember them. For you uh, digital uh, digital natives, um, it's essentially a, a, a camera <laughs> that points down and allows you to kind of project or, or to um, to stream what you're filming to your whiteboard so they they can you can put some pupils work under under the visualizer or put a blank piece of paper under the visualizer and you're writing live in the moment and they can all see it on the screen so what you're then doing when you're modeling writing is you're step by step crafting a written response or written passage and for me when I was doing this with my PGC students I was using my mnemonic so I was identifying I was describing and I was doing all of this live in front of and with my students. And what I was also doing was I was encouraging them to think about and to give me ideas for what I was going to write. So I was using questioning quite regularly, kind of asking about the steps that I was needing to take in in crafting my writing. Now, you don't have to do that the first time you model writing. The first time you model writing, it can be what is often referred to as an I do. Um, That's a a teacher like a champion term from Doug Lemoff. Um, So basically that means that you're doing it without any interaction from them. You're showing them the process and you're talking them through it step by step with no interaction with them. The second step after that is to, as I said, ask them questions. So you're, you're trying to get them to recall the steps that you took. So you might be saying, so what do I do next? And kind of acting like you're the, you're the person who doesn't know so that they can guide you in the next steps. So I would be saying things like, I'm not sure how to start this sentence, guys. Can you give me a, um, a good a good a good start to my sentence? Or can you give me a good connective there? Or what do I need to do next? What's the next bit that I need to, to focus on in my written response? And then you move them to a position where you've done the model, you've made explicit the steps, so you've talked them through metacognition, and then hopefully they will be in a better position to be able to try it independently on their own. And I think that's the important bit, is that you're moving from a modelled example as a scaffold, as a jumping off ground for them to be able to independently write on their own. So having heard me describe all of that, I hope that you're kind of getting a sense of how scary yet how impressive it was for Georgina Saunders to do that live whilst being assessed herself with her year 10 learners and I've got to say you could hear a pin drop in the room apart from in the moments where she was asking them absolutely fantastic questions because what the students could see was the teacher's struggle as well um and yeah, can I see like in, that. Yeah, go on, yeah. you go. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, I like that. The idea that we don't always just trot out the answers simply and easily. It's nice to kind of bring them into the process. I was going to say that feels like a really interactive process because you think modelling, you know, you think maybe I just stand there and show them. But the idea that they're kind of involved in it and it becomes collaborative makes it so much more interactive, so much more challenging for them. But I agree, so much more scary for the person teaching it. Absolutely. And and I think fear is a big theme associated with challenging aspects of teaching and challenging aspects of, of learning. So I think if we can take some calculated and measured risks, then we will hopefully start to build up the resilience in our learners so that, you know, they can see that actually the process of, of writing an extended response is actually quite a complex one. But if we've given them the modelled example and we've kind of demystified the clues and the steps and the and the scaffolds towards solving a really difficult problem which is going to how do I write this response then hopefully we can move them to a plane where they can meet those challenges head on when writing in the future. I think it's worth mentioning as well that uh, it's really quite difficult to explain this um, in all of its nuanced depth and detail. And there's a lot more to this that other authors have tried to illustrate. Um, a really good starting point is um, 
a book by Alison and Tharby. Tom, you, you, you're going to have to help me out here. You've got the book on my desk. This Alison is the magic of... Making Every Lesson Count. Here it is. Making Every Lesson Count. Isn't that magical? So get that book. There's a really great chapter in there that breaks down modelling and modelling writing uh, explicitly. Um, so that'd be a really good starting point if you're thinking about trying this out um, with your with your learners. And I guess what is something to maybe think about off the back of this podcast is how you might model other aspects of your curriculum content I'm thinking about uh, in a prac in science how you might use a, a, a model for that and it might be second nature to you but maybe you hadn't really thought about the steps that you take to really kind of move your learners from a plane of not understanding how to tackle such a big problem to being able to independently tackle that big problem yeah and having that kind of all important transitional bit between you just kind of showing them perfect stuff and them doing it themselves is that one in the middle where you're kind of collaborating on it I really like that idea that you know you're all working together and everything's not completely perfect absolutely and and a place to go to read up more about that is as I said Doug Lamoff teach like a champion and there'll be a chapter in there on I we you that process of I do it then we do it then you do it on your own. And that's that being an iterative and a, a cyclical thing. Wonderful. So we have uh, done a slightly unusual podcast here, partly in your room with a guest, partly over the airwaves um, <laughs> from your house. <laughs> it's, uh, it's been interesting. Um, but uh, yeah, come back soon. I miss you. Ah, <laughs> oh, I will. I will. I'm going to go take the dog for a walk now and work on my well-being. Well, you should have just received a text to your phone containing the end credits for this podcast episode. Oh, wow. This is just, I mean, maybe this is going to sound really fast and loose. I don't know. But or maybe it's just magic. The magic of, of Wi-Fi. <laughs> take a risk. Take a risk and read them out. OK, here goes. That was Emma and Tom's PGC podcast presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. Today's special guest was Sally Bethel, Senior Lecturer in PGC PE here at Cardiff Met. The book we discussed today is Cleverlands by Lucy Crehan. This episode was also brought to you by Georgina Saunders and her live modelling and copious cups of tea. Tom would like to grovelingly apologise for all his controversial statements this episode and wishes Emma all the best for future episodes of Emma and Sally's PGC podcast. We're off to have that pint at long last. Until the next episode, take care and enjoy teaching. <laughs>